0: hello and welcome back to the director's cut brought to you by the directors guild of america today we are happy to bring you highlights from another interview in our visual history program where some of our most prominent and successful members tell the stories of their careers and creative processes in film television and other media these interviews are conducted by a fellow member who understands the challenges of creating compelling visual stories which allows for revealing conversations you cannot find anywhere else. The DGA Visual History Program was founded in the year 2000 and contains more than 170 in-depth and long-form interviews with directors and their team members. You can watch highlights or any fully transcribed and searchable interview on our website at dga.org slash crafts visual history. Today's featured director is television sitcom legend James Burroughs. With more than 40 years directing many of the most critically acclaimed and audience-beloved sitcoms of all time, James Burroughs is considered the modern master of the sophisticated comedy. Among his many accomplishments, Burroughs may be best known as the co-creator and director of nearly every episode of the series Cheers. He has directed the pilots for more than 50 television series many of which have gained iconic status in TV history, including Taxi, Cheers, Frasier, Friends, Will & Grace, Two and a Half Men, and The Big Bang Theory. He has directed episodes of more than 100 series total, and recently directed his 1,000th episode of television. Nominated 21 times for a DGA Award, and 43 times for a Primetime Emmy Award as both director and executive producer, Burroughs won the DGA Award for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Comedy Series four times, twice for Cheers and once each for Frasier and Will and & Grace. He also won the Primetime Emmy Award for directing a total of five times. In 2014, the DGA bestowed upon him one of the two inaugural Lifetime Achievement Awards in Television Direction, along with Robert Butler. Please enjoy listening to highlights of the Visual History Program interview with James Burroughs, conducted by his friend and fellow director, Michael Lembeck.
1: My name is Michael Lembeck. I'm conducting an interview with James Burroughs for the Directors Guild of America's Visual History Program. We are at the DGA here in Los Angeles, and my card is being held by James Burroughs. He's my cue card man. Now he's going to come
2: over and he's going to do this. Uh, Please give your full name at birth nickname uh james burrows no 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 nickname uh la california
1: which is the answer to city and state of birth mm-hmm. you're born in la I not was. in new york no uh, born born in
2: LA. LA. i grew up in the city but i didn't i wasn't <clears throat> born there how long did you live here before you moved to new york uh, we lived here about uh, five years so were
1: you here because of dad's work yeah
2: my father was writing for radio writing uh Um, Joan Davis show writing, uh, um, Duffy's Tavern writing, Uh uh, doing his show called Breakfast with Burroughs. He was out here. uh, He came out in the 30s and, you know, worked selling jokes and stuff like that and then got a gig on on a radio show and was here till 45 when um, my parents had divorced and my mom moved back to New York and he came back to New York.
1: uh. Do you have earliest memories of dad taking you to the theater at a very young age and if it had an impact on you
2: or not? Um. Uh, it, it. I remember him taking me to see uh, rehearsals for Guys and Dolls, and uh, I remember him. I remember me going to the theater when I was young, and uh, I, I went to see Peter Pan with Gene Arthur, huh. not the musical, uh-huh. the stage play. Uh, and where I saw "Where's Charlie?" So I was. I was. You know, in New York, the, that was it, and that was the preeminent uh, form of entertainment: television. Uh, had not come in yet, really, in in a major way. So, I was trundled off to the theater mainly by my mother, and I would go occasionally to rehearsals with my dad.
1: Did you find theater or theatrical people any different than other people in your life when you met them, when you hung out backstage with them, when they came to your house?
2: No, I was Abe's kid, so that was those were my father's friends, mm-hmm. and I uh, don't I don't think you equate it when you grow up and you have those friends. I, I think it's a it's a totally different ball game. They were. Uh, my father used to have New Year's Eve parties with uh, Truman Capote and Edward Albee, and uh, I once remember uh, sitting at a table with a very tipsy John Steinbeck, uh-huh. taking out his uh, his Nobel Prize speech that he carried in his pocket and showing it to me. So, I mean, I, back then I was not impressed because right. I really didn't know uh who who these people were. So for you, it's
1: normal New York background, stoop ball, punch ball, going yeah, to public totally. public school,
2: public school, public school, yeah.
1: Right. And when you matriculated into the upper grades, be they high school or college, you did not have a design on the theater yet. Is this correct?
2: I, uh, I had no designs on the theater because uh, my father was a, a legend in New York City. And growing up with a legend as a dad, you if you have any kind of sickle about you, you don't want to be in the same business because it's too difficult for you as a kid to ever to in your mind to ever surpass him or even be in the same field, so I um, uh, New York will always be Abe's town. Uh, it's it's an amazing it's amazing to me. I still, I still, if I want theater tickets, I'm Abe's kid. Still, yeah, yeah, I'm Abe's. Well, there's kid. something
1: really charming about it. I
2: know, I know. I I used to know most of the box office guys.
1: Okay, so I was going to ask you, what is it that happened at Yale? What what was the uh, epiphany there?
2: So I went to the Yale School of Drama. And I went as a playwright. <laughs> you know, I got in through my father, mm-hmm. and I never, I never realized what my dad did. I used to go to rehearsals, never realized what he did. And then I had, uh, I took, yeah, as a playwright, you have to take directing. So I took um, directing with Niko Sakharov, mm-hmm. who's, you know, Nicholas, famous, famous right. East Coast, right. Williamstown, stuff like that. And all of a sudden, I said, "Oh my God, I can do that." I, I i I do I, never realizing that's what my father did because from Abe was a writer director, so when I used to watch Abe work he was always rewriting he wasn't I didn't necessarily know he was giving you know, what the blocking was or anything mm-hmm. like that so mm-hmm. I you know I kind of hooked into directing and then i uh you know I spent three years at Yale as a playwright but then once I got out it was all about stage managing and and working for Google Ford and when well no.
0: Ha,
1: ha, ha. God, I love the Google growth yeah, circuit, that summer circuit. I our whole family would go, go with my dad. God, those are great. While you're stage managing, job to job, you're doing stage managing, are you beginning to get enlightened and educated as to what works and what doesn't work? And is all of a sudden the DNA kicking in? And things you heard your dad talk about and say, Is are you beginning to form your storytelling notions?
2: Yeah, I think so. A <clears throat> uh, stage manager, get to direct the understudy. Mm-hmm. So you quote directly from your father, mm-hmm. from my father, who, you know, I, you know, I remembered things he said and what he used to do. So I, I had to direct, uh, I would direct the understudies. Um, so that was my first directing experience. Right. You, uh, you have to begin to rely on your sense of what works and what doesn't work. And when somebody's uh, upstaging another person, you mm-hmm. have to, as a stage manager, you really have no clout. As a stage manager, you have to somehow make peace between the two of them. It's tough to give a note as a stage manager.
1: Yeah.
2: it really, It's really yeah. hard. Yeah. And,
1: and where does where the epiphany occur? I, I
2: think what happens is that uh, <clears throat> I came back to do 40 Carrots, again, a play that my father did, mm-hmm. uh, actually written by Jay Presson Allen, and Abe directed it. And uh, it opened on Broadway with Julie Harris. Um, so Julie did it for a while, and then I had to put June Allison in the show. She came. Mm-hmm which was traumatic. And then the person who really launched me uh, was uh, Zsa Zsa Gabor. Uh, she came into the show, and um, I had to put her in. And she needed me because I knew the ropes. I knew where she had to be. I knew where she had to go. And a lot of times she would she would start to miss her cues because she cared about how she looked, not necessarily about making a cue on Broadway, which is criminal. So I used to have to go in her dressing room, and she'll talk about this and throwing her out on stage, no matter how she looked. And what happened was I became her wrangler. I could get her to rehearse. I could get her to do a show. So I would go all over the country directing either 40 Carats or Blight Spirit, which were the two plays she did. And the people wanted her there because she drew an audience. So I ended up in <laughs> um, in San Diego at the Off-Broadway Theater where she had agreed to do 40 Carrots, and she backed out, and I ended up with Marjorie Lord, who came in to do it, and I got a job there based on that show of artistic director for two years. Mm-hmm. So I ended up there, and I did everything. I did uh, Mr. Roberts with uh, James Drury. Mm-hmm. I did uh, uh, Don Knotts and The Last Lovers. It mm-hmm. was that star thing. Right. But in in the summer stock in the summer stock and dinner theater area, once I started to do this, I would go everywhere because people wanted me because I could do a two-hour play. In eight days. In eight days. I could do it. And, and I could also, I would rewrite occasionally and I would put some jokes in. The jokes worked and stuff like that. And, mm-hmm. and it was about, as you know, because we're both in this thing where it's get the friggin' show on. Right. Get it done. Get it done. Get the basics in there, and then you can tweak with the nuances and everything like that. But unless you, if you start doing nuances, you're going to lose them right away. So you got to get them up there. And so this was literally how, how uh, you know, my my directing career began.
1: Wow. And so that was that takes us to.
2: I'm 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 directing Joan Fontaine in Forty Carats in Wallingford, <clears throat> Connecticut. And I go back to my hotel room on a Saturday night, and I go click, turn on the television. And there's the Mary Tyler Moore show. Mm-hmm. And I'm watching it. And all of a sudden I say, oh, my God, they're doing a play. Mm-hmm. I had. You know, I watched Dick Van Dyke. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I watched the Phil Silver show. It never occurred to me. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden I said, oh, my God, they're doing a play. So I sit down and I write myself uh, a letter. And uh, I come home from that. And there's a, a, a letter from Gra- uh, from Grant Tinker. Hmm. saying, um, we received your letter. We're very interested in theatrical directors. We're we're going from the Mary Tyler Moore and the Newhart Show, which they were doing, those two shows, to we're adding the Rhoda Show and we're adding the Paul show. two more sitcoms. And we're interested in theatrical directors. So um, I called him up, and he said he'd... um, I could come out to California and I could observe and watch and I would get to do one show. So I came out, it was it was, you know, it was a paid intern and I started to watch. I started on the New Heart show watching. I started in the last row of the audience. Right. Every week I worked my way down a row. But I was the only observer and on the fifth show Bob Robert Moore was a director and Bob was in the original Cactus Flower and I knew him. And you know, he was rehearsing a scene, and then he took a break, and I walked down. I said hello to him, and I said, uh, I don't know why. I think it would be funnier if Bob was over here when he said that.
1: Well, that's pretty brave. I know. But I knew Bob,
2: and it was not
1: uh-huh.
2: it was not a criticism. It's just, right. you know, maybe you can use this. And we all go to lunch. I get a call from Grant Tinker saying, <laughs> you're not watching the Newhart Show anymore. You're being moved to the Mary Tyler Moore Show. Uh, Bob... Was, you know, didn't like the fact that right. this Pisha. Right. I was 34 then. Mm-hmm. This Pisha was so... Uh, at, uh, to this day, Bob and I are really good friends. We've become very good friends because I did 10 of his shows. Mm-hmm. So I go over to um, the Mary Tyler Moore show, which is just beginning because Newhart started early. And I get there and I'm introduced to Jay Sandridge mm-hmm. And uh, it, it's... I meet him. He's very sweet. Any questions, I meet him. And Hmm. so we started to hang out together and uh, become really good friends. And to this day, he's still my great friend, and he's my mentor. Mm -hmm.
1: You've spoken about Jay often. And I, out in life when we speak, you speak of Jay often. What what, what would you say is, is the main thing that Jay taught you?
2: Jay taught me to express myself. Jay taught me to say what you feel. Jay taught me not to be intimidated. Jay taught me do not worry about your next job. You have to, you know, sitcom directors are not traffic cops. We have stuff to say. And Jay taught me that, and it's been my philosophy my whole life and what I try to imbue to other directors. You know, we've had meetings breakfasts breakfast about this, about saying you have to die with your boots on. yes. You have to say what you think. You have to, to, you have to try to impress. You have time when you're not subject to writers' opinions. You have time with the actors where you have to score your points mm-hmm. and make your mark. And, and he he emboldened me because I used to watch him on that show with, um, with giving his opinions. And you had, you know, probably uh, the greatest comedy writer ever, sitcom writer, was Jim Brooks on mm-hmm. that show and who was incredibly opinionated and Jay used to fight him tooth and nail for things he wanted and they would go and it was good and it was healthy. And so Jay taught me that. And uh I you know, I watched for a while and then um after about three months of watching, the Paul Sand show started up and they needed somebody to be a dialogue coach to Paul. And I started to become Paul Sands' dialogue coach, just teaching him the lines. Every weekend, I would go out oh. to his place and mm-hmm. work on lines. So I, at least now I was working while I was observing. Right. And after a while, as you know, when you observe, you can only you can only put so much in your head. You have to do it. Right, to find out what you know. To, to find out what you know. You have to do it. And uh, so I get called for my first job. Uh, I'm going to do a Mary Tyler Moore show. Um um, it's, uh, it's called, uh, Lou Moves In.
1: Is this the D-minus story? Yeah,
2: it's, yeah, okay. uh, no, it's not called Lou Moves In. Um, I don't remember what it was called. And, uh, you know, I, I think I'm going to get the Paul Sancho to do, mm-hmm. or I'm going to get a Rhoda to do. But I get this show and, um, I read it about nine times before the reading <laughs> and I'm going, hmm,
1: <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: and then we go to the table and we read it. And it's, it's it's just terrible. And I say to Artie Price, who was then Grant Tinker's partner, I said, in the Sea of Danish, I get a bagel.
1: Right. That's right. You've been quoted many times. Yes, That's I know. Right.
2: And <laughs> so back in those days, back in those days, after the reading, you went and rehearsed. Mm-hmm. So we went down on stage right after the reading, and I rehearsed Act One, and it was just... I knew it was going to be totally rewritten, so I'm 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 rehearsing this a- act, and you know, Mary's unhappy, Ed's unhappy, and I'm and I'm this poor kid trying to get them get them to rehearse, and I'm I'm quoting everything. I'm quoting Chekhov. I'm quoting Stanislavski, I'm I'm trying to do anything to get them because I think the emotions in the show are going to be pretty similar, and and the and what Lou's feeling and what Mary's feeling about Lou moving upstairs. Therefore, she's close to him at work and she's close to him at home. And so I'm doing this and I'm, you know, and I don't know what they're thinking. But so immediately we go to lunch and immediately after lunch, the whole new first act comes down. So I got to reblock it. So I'm, you know, I'm treading water. I'm doing what – I'm invoking anything I can. And... um. Uh, the, the run throughs back then with, uh, uh, were almost two hours because Jim Brooks, uh, the genius that he was, he, well, he would rewrite. And, you know, I had watched him long enough to know he was, I was not threatened. I was not threatened by that. I knew what his genius was and, uh, still is. And so that would happen. And then, you know, camera day happened and, uh, I remember being asked by the AD if I wanted any help with my cameras, and I said no. I gotta, I gotta do it myself. And uh, I learned a few lessons. I had at one point Mary, you know, I had to figure out Mary wanted to make a gesture, and you know, with her arms. And I said, "Can you do it?" Because I have a close-up camera on you. Can you do it here? And she said, "Don't restrict me." Mm-hmm. So I had then had to figure out a way to, and the cameras were not as facile back then. Mm-hmm. So anyway. At, uh, the shows used to start at seven 7.30 then, at, and at 7 o'clock I was pacing backstage, and uh, Mary Tyler Moore came up to me and said, we feel our investment in you has worked out.
1: Oh, <laughs> what an emotional moment for you.
2: It was it uh, it was it was a great experience. And the minute that, then that next Monday, I had, they, uh, they offered me two new hearts, they offered me a uh, a rota, they offered me a Paul Sand, and I was on my way.
1: Um, okay, so let's let's put aside the, uh, the history of James Burroughs for a moment, and let's talk about some different kind of subjects that are much more specific to how you spend your day at work. As the pilot director, what role do you play in the development of a pilot?
2: My job, and I think of it this way, my job is to protect the vision of the writer. Mm-hmm. Therefore, the shows that I choose to do, the pilots I choose to do, I have to light the vision. So, uh, therefore, my job now is to get around, to help the writers get around these preconceptions of, uh, of, of what a show should be and trying to homogenize the show. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there's no more greater example than Will and Grace, which, when I read that script, I went, oh my God, uh, uh, these guys have written a show that has a distinct point of view that's not on television. How do I protect that point of view? Mm-hmm. And so that's my first goal. So everything I do is to make sure that that point of view ends up on right. the screen. And if I like the vision, then I will audition the writers. Mm-hmm. They think they're meeting me, but I'm auditioning the writers because I want, I want to know that. There is back and forth between us. I want them to be able to defend their material, not be defensive about the mm-hmm. material. I don't want them to say to me, no, it's funny. I don't want to hear those words. If I hear those words, I don't want to. Or, I, you know, if I hear the words, no, no, we know what we want to do. I don't want that. Mm-hmm. I want to be able, I want them to be able to listen to what I have to say, and and the one caveat I have with them is, 50% of what I say is golden, 50% is shit, and it's your job to figure out which is which, mm-hmm. because I don't necessarily know. I don't have writer's logic. I have ideas, a lot of ideas, and I'll throw them out there, but consider them. If you you don't have to do them all, right. if you have a better way to do it, fine. But don't tell me no our ways. Uh, no, no, we're not gonna we're not gonna think about your ideas. Mm-hmm. You know, that's 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 what I require from my writers. Uh, yeah. you know, and what
1: works the best? What 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 has proven to work the best when communicating with writers?
2: Well, you, it, I mean, if uh, I see uh, you, you, can watch them and you start throwing out ideas, and you and you see if you see the head go <laughs> like that, <laughs> maybe maybe you got to them, and that's what I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. I'm looking for the consideration. I don't want to screw up their vision, but I want them to go, Huh? Eh, that may be a better way to tell the story. I mean, in, in, in the pilot of Will and Grace, there was a scene where um, Will goes running down to the courthouse to talk Grace out of a marriage or something like that. And I said to the guys, mm, I, I think we've seen that scene. Maybe you want to do where they get angry at one another. Because Will says don't marry him, and Grace says screw you, and does it, and then Grace, because she says screw you, feels bad, so she goes back to Will. Mm-hmm. So you have that dynamic mm-hmm. rather than the typical court. I mean, there, and they took that suggestion and the pilot. I think was better because of those mm-hmm. those moments. Uh, uh, the, the great thing about that show was it was like Third Rock. It was a, a fantasy. One mm-hmm. well, Grace is a fantasy. It's a fairy tale. Mm-hmm. Oh literally and figuratively mm-hmm. it's it was a show that was not of the earth because it was um hyper reality mm-hmm. and so that was great in dealing with the subject matter of a homosexual in the lead and i mm-hmm. um, his buddy who who screwed every guy in new york but was innocent mm-hmm. and uh, a fairy godmother in megan who was uh, you know so everything the the most the most grounded character uh the most normal character was messing who was playing a, a neurotic Jew and eric grounded his character yet it was he, he was he was uh, a bit of a fairy tale too so that's what was great about that show we did shit on that show that was n- was not realistic Jack, you know, showing you to make those entrances, doing car wheels—it no, was not realistic, but we got away with it because it was hyper. Yeah. It was hyper reality. That was—that's why I—I I did every show because I was doing, I was working in a milieu and with characters I had never worked with before.
1: Yeah, I want to move forward, but I want to move back first, which is I want to talk about Cheers. How involved were you in the creating of that?
2: Uh We were uh, Glenn and Les Charles and myself were we—we we were all on. Uh, the Phyllis Show, in 1975. They were story editors. And I was a director. We met then. Then in '78, we were reunited. They were producers of Taxi, and I was a director. And we we, all, we had the same agent, Bob Broder, and he and I, I got Bob because he was Jay's agent, and I figured mm-hmm. Jay Sanders gets every pilot in the world, I'll get. So anyway, so Bob wanted us to do a show together. And we did. We did. We we liked one another, so. We talked about this show, uh, for, you know, Faulty Towers was our favorite show. And so we decided to set the show in a hotel. And then we went, uh, we then decided maybe a bar on the way from Vegas in Barstow. And then we decided a sports bar. And then we went to Boston. And then we decided Tracy Hepburn at the core of the show. Anyway, so I was. that was the only show I've ever taken created by credit. Right, but
1: that's exactly, that. what you just described, that development process is fascinating to me. And it took you ultimately where?
2: It took uh, it took me... Uh, to a uh, bar in Boston? A bar in Boston. Because it became... Well, the Vegas bar... I mean, the Barstow bar was people going co- uh, going from and coming to Vegas. Mm-hmm. So we thought we'd get interesting types <clears throat> there. But we were all sports fans. We did a mm-hmm. sports bar. We thought an ex-alcoholic wide receiver. Sam Malone was originally a wide receiver for the Patriots. Uh, we thought it was interesting that... Uh, the the first conception of Sam was that he was working for a woman, which is what happened when Kirstie took over. Mm-hmm. But the boys, God loved them. The, the most influential people in my life uh, were Glenn, Les, Charles. We we talked about the characters: the coach, the waitress, Carla, uh, uh, the guy George, or Norm. He was originally called George. George went mm-hmm. was originally called George. Norm at the end of the bar. And they went off, we talked about you know what with it, they went off and they wrote a script, and I came back from my honeymoon, and the script showed up, and i I read the script and I, and I called the boys and I said, "You brought radio back to television." What they did was it was a it was a show about people who came into the bar and talked, so you could literally do the show on radio, and it would have been a big hit. Mm-hmm. Um, they took the character of uh, Sam working for a woman and created this wonderful character about this student, this teaching assistant who came in and was marooned in the bar. Mm -hmm. And we went through about six months of auditions. Wow. Finding finding people. I knew about Ted Danson because he had read for uh, Best of the West. Mm Mm-hmm. And so uh, I, I was one of his big champions, and uh, Shelly Long. They we had tried everybody had tried to get Shelly Long to do pilots, and she wouldn't do it. Hmm. Um, the character of Coach was originally uh, given to Robert Prosky, but he didn't want to. Uh, he didn't want to relocate from Washington, mm-hmm. and we always had Rhea in mind for Carla because she was on Taxi playing Xena. Yeah. Uh and uh, so. And it, it was great, and we spent six months casting. Uh, we had uh, we had a, a um, the final audition instead of being in the studios in the network's green room or wherever they had, we got uh, a uh, a bar set that was on bosom buddies, and had a catered lunch, and invited the network and the studio to see three these three couples audition for Sam and Diane. You had Fred Dreyer and Julia Duffy, William Devane and Lisa Eichhorn and Ted and Shelley. And the person who was perfect for Sam Malone – well, it was Sam Harrison originally. Sam Malone was Fred Dreyer. He was. He was that character because mm-hmm. Fred was a defensive enemy. Mm-hmm. So we, all three couples had <clears throat> different different personalities, different things that made them funny. They were all great. But the, the upside was you, Ted they, and you Shelley. You film the scenes? No, we never filmed them. You just showed them? Just uh, they were in the audience, right. yeah. Right, There We would wow. set up chairs. We set up chairs. Wow. And it was that, that, that week my first daughter was born, so wow. I, I remember it distinctly. And there were votes for every – we got up. We went up in a room. Everybody voted, and there were votes mm-hmm. for Freddie, and there mm-hmm. were votes for Billy Devane. And, but the best upside was Ted and Shelley. They had the greatest chemistry together.
1: Right and do you have a a particular particular methodology or process that you use in casting that is is yours that you always exercise?
2: No, you. Yeah, here's the methodology. You uh, you you're going to see a scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, a red. Uh, well, I used to see it on on Cheers. We used to see read sixty times. Same scene in audition. Mm-hmm. And. Uh, we never changed the scene because we knew someday, although we were bored by this, someday somebody's going to put a new twist on that scene. Right, and that's the one. So that's, that's (coughs) what I look for. It's a new twist on the scene. It's Mm -hmm. a way to make something funny that you've heard a hundred times. And that's, that's what you look for in an actor.
1: Right. Do you work with the actors at all?
2: Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes you work with them. Right. You know, it's, if you have to work with them, 99% of the time they ain't going to get the job. Mm-hmm. Because what you're doing is trying to make them mediocre. Mm-hmm. Where those who come in and have already elevated the part, they've elevated the character. Mm-hmm. They make the writer's job easier. Mm-hmm. They're bringing something to the dance.
1: When Danny came in, did you know about him already for Taxi? Mm-hmm. And did you go, oh my God? How can that not be the guy?
2: They, uh, I I don't know. I wasn't there when Danny came in initially. I was there when he read at the network. Mm -hmm. He came in, threw the script on the table, and said, who wrote this shit? Right, that's a famous story. That's a famous story. But I was there when Chris Lloyd came in for Reverend Jim. And I think every producer and writer in the room and director had to change their underwear because we laughed so hard. Wow. Because he, I was there when Dan Hidea came in to read for Nick Tortelling. Right. I mean, is it
1: thrilling when that happens? Oh. It, 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 surprise. It's also, oh, thank God. There's the person.
2: Yeah, it but it's in. surprise. Is it what I told Humor is surprise. Uh huh. So when the person comes in and does something you couldn't think of. Right. Ah. Gotta have it. Jack, uh, you know, Sean Hayes for Jack McFarland. Yeah. Uh, uh, for uh, a coach.
1: Yeah. Yeah, totally. Never saw that coming. I'm never,
2: sure. <laughs> and I, they told me it's about Ed thrilling. Asner. You know, yeah. Ed and Gavin and Ted Knight before Mary Tyler Moore all played heavies. Never did any comedy. Really? Yeah, and and that's what I look for when I'm casting. Man, I look so for exciting. guys who've never seen. Now, Nikki Nikki Colsano was the mafia boss in Raging Bull. Sure. You look at him, you're, ah, he's not funny, and right. all of a sudden, bah, you know. So that's what. You you want you want your your, so, uh, your socks knocked off.
1: Whose idea was Tony? Who brought Who the heck thought Tony Danza should come in and
2: read for this? Stu Sheslow. really? Mm-hmm. Stu was an executive at, uh, at ABC then, and I think he had done a movie with Tony where he was a a, 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 a he, he had a small part I, in the movie. I did not even know
1: that Tony had done anything before Texas. Yeah, he
2: had done a movie, a uh, small part in uh-huh. a movie, and uh, well, he just had that quality, just. Yeah, You lit up a room.
1: I know it's 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 a spectacular, indescribable, indefinable moment when that person walks in.
2: Right, I mean you see that. But what's great about the television process, as opposed to the movie process, <clears throat> in television, when you see somebody with just in a room with the writers and they make you laugh, mm-hmm. they have to come back for the network, mm-hmm. they have to come back for the studio, mm-hmm. and the key thing is if they continue if to they make continue. you laugh, right? If they don't continue, yeah.
1: Right. Okay, so now I want to move into rehearsals. And I guess it would be a two-part. One is when you start a show, new cast, for as long as it takes to start working shorter hours, and then when you're with a cast of veterans and you've been doing it for a number of years, what's the difference in rehearsal spent?
2: With with a new cast, uh, I I spend maybe two, three hours just talking a little bit. Uh, and I, on Cheers, I spent about six hours. We all sat around the bar. This was at Pilot Week, mm-hmm.
1: right? As as opposed to Year Four, first thirteen of that season. Uh, How are the rehearsals different? What do they look like?
2: Oh, okay. When I in the first year, it's it, it, if you cast the show well, they're the exactly the same amount of time as in the fourth year. Because really. Well, you, you hopefully you cast actors who you don't have to get the mediocre, who mm-hmm. actors who are I have to get the mediocre. Yeah, right? actors yeah. who are mediocre, who you can take to the next level, mm-hmm. or actors who are good, you can take to great. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, you've done that, and then all of a sudden, your rehearsal process comes this wonderful, exciting thing where your your new stuff is coming out, new <laughs> new ways to do lines are coming out. Mm-hmm. So, I spend a little more time. I do in the first year of a show, I do every scene twice. When I'm rehearsing it. Mm-hmm. And then eventually it's only done once.
1: and when you are doing the scenes twice, the first time you are you stopping and starting? Yeah, right, and doing your directing thing.
2: yeah, but my I'm an editor. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know i'm a I'm a guy, I'm a guy who uh, you act for me, and I'll tell you what's good. Mm-hmm. And as they do that, you ideas occur to you and mm-hmm. then you throw in. Mm-hmm. but that's what you want. You don't want to come in and you've uh, had little stick figures at night and you move them around. you don't want to have any preconception or mm-hmm. I don't. Where the actors should be. Right. Because that immediately the actors become uh, puppets. Mm-hmm. You don't want them puppets. You want them giving you ideas. Mm-hmm. And, then, you know, if you don't like an idea of an actor, you don't say, I hate that. You say, maybe try it this way. Mm-hmm. So in the in the first year of a show, I, I do every scene twice. And then once, well, maybe the first six weeks. If the actors are good enough, you only need to do it once. Because right. what the sitcom has become is a tennis match. Mm-hmm. And the actors are good enough, they get it the first time. So when I say tennis match, it means that the writers write a script, and I think of it as a tennis ball, and they, 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 they hit it to the actors at the mm-hmm. reading. The actors read it and hit it back to them after the reading. The writers rewrite based on the reading, hit the tennis ball back to the actors, and I run through the new version, and then we hit the tennis ball back to them. So the longer it takes you hit the tennis ball back, the less time you have of perfecting the show, and the thing that will slow me down is actors' questions. Mm-hmm. Sometimes actors will ask questions that they like to hear themselves ask. So you have to be discerning when they're asking you a concrete question or when they're asking when they like to hear talks. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a, you're a psychiatrist, you're a manipulator. I am a manipulator. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm good. So um, yeah, it, again, it's a collaborative process with the writers. It's not enemy. And friend, it's collaborative. You're trying to make it better, and you're trying to do it as fast as possible, because um, you can get the nuance when you know what the emotion is, but you can't get the nuance if the emotion is wrong in the scene. So you got to get the emotion right, then you work on the nuance. The actors are usually good with nuance; they'll work at it at home and stuff like that. So if you start working on nuance and the emotion isn't right, you've gone, you've wasted time.
1: What is it about working in the theater that prepares the director better for communicating to actors and and helping them invest in what it is the author's intent is? Do you believe that that's true?
2: Yeah, it is an advantage when you talk to actors. Uh, I think that uh, if you come out of film, there's more technical expertise mm-hmm. that you know, but if you come from the theater, the, that technical expertise you don't really need, mm-hmm. at least the theater I do. I mean, but, you know, uh, I would, uh, I, I, if, I had, if I had done film instead of theater, <laughs> it would have still been the same thing for me because for some reason I know how to talk to actors, you know how to talk to actors, and it's, you can't learn that. Mm-hmm. You just can't learn that. You can perfect that and hone that and put more into that, get more experience of how to do that, tell more stories. There are ways, you you know, you have to be a psychiatrist. You know it's all mm-hmm. about manipulation. Um, But, or you can't learn a sense of humor. You have to have that. Uh, and uh, so that's what I guess I had, and the theater brought that out in me. But uh, you can certainly learn the technical stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can learn how to move cameras and... Uh, uh, but you can't learn how to talk to actors. But there's something about the communal feeling of a play, um, where everybody's together all the time. In a film, that's not true. You're just shooting isolated scenes out uh-huh. of water. But there's, it's all, you're all in a lifeboat together that I think really helps, especially in the form I do, which is the sitcom, which mm-hmm. is actually theater, filming a theater play.
1: You talk about, um, it's really the words. It's the words. And that, that sometimes when you walk, you walk just behind cameras and, and listen. And I've seen you at table reads um, in which you never look up. I just see you listening. You're not looking at the actors. You're just listening. And when you talk about, it's the words. Are you talking about storytelling? Are you talking about literally the, the text moving well, moving the story forward, or something else?
2: No, no it's it's all about uh, uh, it's all about hooking the audience, and you hook the audience with compassion. And uh, it, it was it was something I learned, not necessarily from my father as much as from the Charles Brothers when working on hmm. Cheers. Uh, uh, this what what a scene must do, and how a scene must advance a story. And in hindsight, I went back to. And the numerous times I've seen Guys and Dolls, I'm amazed on how every scene in that piece advances the plot. And if you don't advance the plot, there's no sense in having the scene. So um, uh, uh, that was that was that was taught to me by Glenn and Les because I was in when I directed Cheers. I would stay for all rewrites at 10 o'clock. I would go home because I had to get up early with the actors. But I would hear them talking and about how how to, how to advance the story, how to be compassionate, how to how to make an actor likable, how to make an actor dislikable and then uh, uh, have a rapprochement at the end of the show where he becomes likable and how that's more interesting than him being likable the whole show. So all that stuff, I'm sure my father said um, – I don't think he ever said it to me and he never – set it to actors it was always a manipulation to get him that way or or he would change a line to rewrite it to make it more palatable or make it more sympathetic so um you know that that was when I when I listen I try to hear you know I don't worry about jokes because all those guys can write jokes it's just I worry about them telling a good story and advancing mm-hmm. the plot. Everything. Right.
1: So therefore, when you talk about when you've been quoted before talking about the words, it's it's the words you're talking about. Story.
2: It's the words. It's <clears> the words in all rehearsals and readings and stuff like that. And when it's in front of the audience, you have to have those 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 beats down already. Mm-hmm. And then when I walk behind the cameras, I'm listening for the rhythms. I'm listening to uh, to make sure that the that. There are the correct rhythms, and then I'm also listening for for actors. If they go up in a line mm-hmm. or something like that, you want to be right there. You want to be right there to say, "Let's back it up," mm-hmm. so that they don't screw up a joke. Because if they screw up a joke and the audience hears half the joke, it ain't going to be as funny. Mm-hmm. When because humor is surprise, it's ninety percent surprise.
1: And how and set up your week. And I think you've already suggested. And let's call it a Monday to Friday week. So on Monday to Friday, Monday you read and go home.
2: Yeah, you don't a, rehearse. I, I that's a change I I made. Right, because they're
1: going to rewrite the script anyway. Why why work it?
2: Uh, I used to on Cheers. I used to Monday. I used to work. Mm-hmm. But you got to a couple of days. You got to a couple of reading scripts where they had to throw it out, and I said, let you know, let the writers right. have that Monday. Right. Tuesday you come in. Tuesday you come in and you block what they've re- or right. what they've rewritten, and then you show it to them. Wednesday you come in, you block what they've rewritten, you show it to them. Thursday the cameras come in, mm-hmm. you block the cameras around.
1: The Are you is do you have a habit of showing a run through Thursday after camera blocking, or we prefer not to? Uh, it doesn't matter to you.
2: Uh, it depends uh, on a Monday through Thursday, a Monday through Friday show. I don't usually, unless there's a scene that's a problem, mm-hmm. and I try to show them that scene before I block the cameras because if it's going to change again, you're wasting time.
1: And on Friday, on shoot day, we'll call On it? Friday,
2: you come in at noon, and you do the cameras twice. And if there are problems, you still show scenes. And then you do it in front of the audience. And uh, as opposed to Cheers, when we shot everything once and picked up only shots, mm-hmm. now everything's shot twice.
1: How do you prepare for camera blocking day?
2: Uh, I used to, um, for the first two years I was directing, mm-hmm. and I did a lot of shows I did and the first year I did, Ten and the next year, uh, first year I did four shows. And the next year I did twenty-five shows. Mm-hmm. So I went bang. I would I would take my uh, script at home and I would uh, lay it out and write A, B, C. We only use three camera You'd cameras. You'd write all your shots. Write all all my um, camera coverage. Get mm-hmm. yeah, all my shots.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And um, then what I found was happening was that the best light plan of Mice and Men didn't always work. So mm-hmm. I would get into the third page of a scene and the, one of my shots wouldn't work, mm-hmm. which meant everything else was thrown out. Mm-hmm. So you, then you had to improvise, and I find myself improvising a lot. And then Jay Sanders told me, eh, you don't need them rap." So I stopped writing them down after a while.
1: And first thing in the day, you arrive in the morning on the set, and do you have a particular process you go through? that you know works for you and your cast?
2: I read. Every day. First thing we do is read. Because you just have to the actors have to know emotionally what they're going through. Mm-hmm. If there's new material I'll watch. if there's new material I'll try to address that scene right away on, mm-hmm. on Thursday. Right. So that you you're you're attacking it right away. So
1: your day way. starts reading the material, go have a bagel and then we're up on our feet and we blast right. through the next three we hours. Blast through. What would you say to the new director on right. their way up? Uh, you want to maximize their opportunity for success.
2: Well, again, uh, don't mitigate your view. Don't don't change what you're trying to say because somebody says you should change it. Because mm-hmm. you have to be faithful to what you believe because you have to make yourself laugh. Uh, uh, one of the great things I, I, I learned in, in, in doing all these shows was... Um, I chose them because they made me laugh, mm-hmm. not because I thought they would make somebody else laugh. Just they made me laugh, and luckily enough, I was simpatico mm-hmm. with uh, uh, the audience. So you gotta do, you gotta be truthful to yourself and what mm-hmm. excites you and what titillates you about your own vision. Don't try to change it because you think America will like it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I don't know what the particular field is. In my field, I again, you have to score your points according to the rules of their game. Mm -hmm. You have to play by their rules Mm -hmm. and yet get your vision in there. So it's a complicated task, Mm -hmm. but it's a task that can be done. So it's about scoring your points. And in my particular field, because it's different than one camera, my particular field, it's about playing by somebody else's rules Mm -hmm. and co-opting them and putting your two cents or three cents, hopefully it's more than two cents, into it, and therefore getting your point across and impressing people with what you do, playing within their rules. And that's, if you don't do that, if you just kind of blah, you're not going to get the next. Mm -hmm. If you don't experiment, if you don't try, if you don't go out there and put a little of your soul in the show, you're not going to, you won't succeed. You just won't. Right. Thank you, Mr. Burroughs. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to highlights of this visual history interview with James Burroughs. On our website, you can watch the entire interview and hear Mr. Burroughs further discuss the art of television direction. You can also explore the entire public collection of our visual history program. So check it all out at DGA. Dot org crafts history If you're enjoying the director's cut, please subscribe to it on iTunes or our SoundCloud page so you won't miss an episode. And if you like this episode, please leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks for listening and have a great week. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.